Namaste. I'm Sheetal Shah. Welcome to HAF's podcast, That's So Hindu. Today, I'm chatting with Ricky Warren, one of the top global movement coaches. His movement school, Bodyweight Grooves, based in London, qualifies fitness professionals and therapists with accredited certifications. Ricky has been practicing advanced bodyweight movement, yoga, and mixed martial arts, including the ancient Indian arts of Kalari and Kushti, for over three decades. He currently holds a Guinness World Record for the most consecutive L-sit ring muscle-ups. More recently, Ricky has been teaching yoga philosophy as part of a growing mission to ensure the authenticity and sacredness of both yoga and Sanatana Dharma are protected and shared. Thank you, Ricky, for joining us on our podcast, That's So Hindu. It is a pleasure to have you here. It's my pleasure to be here, Joe. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to go ahead and just jump in. Um, you know, you have learned Kushti, Kalari, yoga. You've been practicing it for a number of years. For folks like myself who are not very familiar, particularly with Kushti and Kalari, maybe um, you can talk just a little bit about the basics of those practices and then start to talk about the philosophy and how it ties into maybe a broader philosophy. I was born in London. And uh, even though culturally uh, I had a connection to all these different types of traditions and arts from back home in India, um, it was my personal study into it that allowed me to get a deeper insight because growing up in the West, there's not that much knowledge around. You have to go to the root of it. And so in the last 10 years, I've gone back and forth uh, to India and other Asian countries. Even if you go to Thailand, at their uh, airport in Bangkok, there is the uh, uh, churning of the ocean, right? That big statue. And I, I walked in to go home back to London. I was like, that's Lord Siva. And these are the Asura and the Devas. And I was like, whoa, this is in Thailand. And you see Hanuman everywhere. And then, you know, you keep reading about how uh, Bharata Varsha included uh, India and Bali, uh, Thailand and all these areas because it was an ancient, not empire, but culture that decided the boundaries. The boundaries were decided by what the people believed in, not by lines drawn by kings because there wasn't, there wasn't that need for that. It was ancient. It was the cradle of civilization. So uh, I've gone back and forth to there for so long to try and learn from different places. And because of this 29 years of physical exercise experience in probably more than 30 disciplines is very easy to pick up new ones because there is nothing new under the sun. It's, it's only recycled or paraphrased differently. So as long as you start to learn the principles behind these types of arts, then you see how they're grouped together in different areas and where the lines are that they're drawn or say martial arts for existence, the distance between you and I, if there's a leg length, then you can use kicks. And if there's an arm length, it's boxing range. But then, and then if you grab, there's a grappling range, and then there's the floor. But there's also a range, or the several ranges between kicking and grappling, not just punching. There's there's even a range here where certain work can happen to bypass angles and to find space for the right uh, grabs. If people aren't comfortable in all those ranges, then they come undone when they go into those ranges. They they become useless. So. Um, I basically just kept expanding my ranges of um, martial arts for maybe from when I was seven years old till about 20, 20, early 20s, so 15 years ish. And then I'd keep it up, teaching it in classes and gyms and things on the side and always trying to get better, but not really interested in competing and actually fighting and getting hurt because I had quite some injuries from when I was younger, like a my septum was uh, broken. I couldn't breathe out of this nostril for a long time and things like this. So I just liked the art of it and what it was teaching me spiritually. There was something about doing it for me, the person I am, that I need to exercise and move. But I was finding some spiritual sadhana was happening, even though I didn't know it was called sadhana or tapasya. So I did all this work. And then now when I start to pick up other arts, like now I, I learn um, rag, how to play them on different instruments in Khan and um, these different martial arts from India take my interest because they're ancient, but they're actually warfare. They're not meant for sport, as in get, you don't want to get on the ground and uh, grapple with someone. You don't want to circle around exchanging punches. 
you take one down, you look around in 360 and you keep moving. You take the, this is wartime stuff because it's not, we don't really consider fighting for sport uh, a sport. Fighting in India, especially in the Peluan tradition of wrestling, is the wrestler considers the bout, uh, sorry, the training more important than the bout. So the, the whole lifestyle of the wrestler is to be a brahmachari. That's it. That's the lifestyle. And the, the, the diet is Ayurvedic and their worship rituals. Everything is connected to the, the Sanatana Dharma and the Vedic. And when we look at Kalari, for example, which I'm learning from my guru in Kerala, and I'm doing it now online because of the way the world is right now, but I would need to go there and start learning some more advanced stuff with him. But, you know, he, the reason I, I didn't choose him on the basis of um, how good he looks or how strong he is or how good he is at the art, because he's a bit older, but also, uh, you know, but essentially his skill level and what he can do is, is less important to me than his knowledge. And I realized this because I can do all these things now. I have a world record. I can do all these things that probably 0.01% people can do physically. Yet in 20 years, I won't be able to replicate it. But does that mean I'm, I have less value to offer? No. So at the same time, he has a really good understanding of how the worship rituals and everything moves in. So, there's this one concept uh, or Guru Vandanam yeah, across all the different arts where we pay respect to the Guru before God because Guru is imparting the knowledge. And uh, there's a form in Kalari Bhayatu called Putara Vandanam. Putara meaning another way of saying Guja, Putara Vandanam, which is prayer to God and to Guru and to uh, other aspects. And one of the moves in there, they sit in the cat stance, which is like when Hanuman kneels, it's similar to that. And uh, the arms will touch the knees, come around, touch the shoulders, scoop up the flower from the ground, offer it to God and put it down, and then uh, pray. And they do that three times like this. And then you carry on doing the martial arts moves in the forms. So there's this, this worship aspect or devotional aspect is deeply woven into every art in India, which the Vedic arts call. It sounds a lot like it sounds a lot like the worship that dancers do in Bharatanatyam that, before exactly, they start exactly. performance. And even even not just it's now I've studied them and I'm keep and I keep studying in more detail. They are so interlinked you can't separate them because to know what Baitak is which is Hindu squat, you will see it in every single art form. In Sanatana in Sanatan Shastra Vidya, which is a North Indian uh, martial art style, uh, based in, it was, I think it was developed in Punjab. The way their stance is, the way they walk, is the similar way to the way they dance in Bharatanatyam, with the knees turned out and feet at 45 degrees. So, no, so that somebody cannot pick your leg or push you in certain angles. You have to try to keep the groin and the body away. So we're opening the legs and certain things like this. Then you look at Kushti and the Dand and the things that they do. Dand, Hindu pusher, is where you go from a down dog, down to up dog, and then back. And in wrestling, in yoga, they do it very slow, all the way through the spine, everything controlled. In Kushti, they go boom, boom, boom. And then you get up and down with a bitak, like a burpee. And this is supposed to induce a trance in the wrestler so that he's actually doing sadhana and tapasya and he's basically doing what yogis do, but he's doing it in his kshatriya way. But at the same time, he's kshatriya because he's taking the path of the warrior as a wrestler, not by caste. So wrestling actually in the akaras in India, they don't uh, acknowledge caste. Anyone is welcome in akara. So you go there and you become warrior by do, by living a warrior's life, which means to live in Dharma, to eat Ayurvedic diet, Sattvic diet, and to train for for the value of the spiritual development of training, not for the bout. And then in Kalari, which is actual wartime, there are certain there is a lot of philosophy that goes with it, 
such as uh, you know they we train the the limbs and the hands and the feet to be strong so that we understand the body and then we understand we are not the body and so on and calorie is devised in a defensive way to maximize damage but also to um, preserve the life of the enemy as a principle because when you think about it as I expanded on this in my own head if I ever have an issue with somebody it's only on an ideological level unless they're violently attacking you which is rare nobody just comes and attacks you and if they do then they deserve whatever they get back and, and until they stop you can't kill them this is the point you, you do what you have to do to stop them if they're coming at you but if somebody's arguing with you or you're having a debate about something you, even if you I, I realise this even if you strike that person down and you kill them uh, their ideology will live on in the people that remember their death and try to avenge them and uh, if you leave them alive their ideology will still continue and if you uh, so it's not them you need to kill if you have a problem if you have a problem with the ideology you need to debate it and that's the Hindu way is is we don't want to fight we want to debate the logic of it and if you lose you know you've lost and that's it that you can never revive that line of questioning because we've defeated it. So never again take any action in the name of that silly philosophy because we've defeated it and we've accepted it. And then that's the way we keep it out. But to try to defeat people, it just creates cycles of um, fighting. So that's India does not approach fighting in that way. It approaches it as purely <clears throat> a matter of fact of duality, which is attacks, attacks come, so you must respond. That's it. And uh, we're not going to sit here and uh, be pacifists. That's not Dharma. We will train with all the power we can because all the power is God's. And if we're uh, serving God, then we are uh, we're eligible for access to all that power. Well, a lot, of, a lot of people over the years have had that misunderstanding of Hinduism or Sanatana Dharma that is a pacifist. Uh, tradition, right? We've put a lot of emphasis on ahimsa. Um, obviously, you know, Mahatma Gandhi is known for ahimsa. And so I think that has gotten translated onto what Hinduism is, that we're pacifist. And I think a lot of Hindus themselves have imbibed that pacifist idea that it's okay, you know, let it happen. Um, there's no need to argue about it, no need to fight it. Uh, but I think to your point, our Shastras, the Gita, everything, it we're not pacifists, right? We don't have to be violent, um, but if you have to defend dharma, you have to well, defend dharma. Necessary. We might have to be violent. That's that was the whole Mahabharata, wasn't it? That, so, that was the Mahabharata. Uh, yeah. I, you mentioned Gandhi, and I need to touch on it because I, I'm not a political person. I don't like to be political, but we should recognize that uh, Gandhi was a political figure because of the spheres of influence he. he uh, engaged in and so if we look at him as a spiritual person his message of ahimsa uh, was strong in the sense that why should non-violence fear violence because it's the complete uh, extreme opposite so it should be just as strong so I agree with that but the rest of the political stuff that happened I know in India a lot of people and outside as well everyone has a lot of different opinions about uh, what his political activities resulted in and uh, so I think we have to distinguish when we look at teachers as well, especially you can have a teacher that um, teaches martial arts and he's the best, but he might have a very dangerous ideology. And then, and then, so why does that person get worshipped just for their skill? And this is what um, I'm, I fail to understand a lot of the time is, this is like Swami Prabhupada says, in the West they're saying, uh, there's no need for books. You follow me. Uh, I'm God, basically. I've got the, the way I'm figuring it out and saying it, this is the way, listen to me. And if they're not quoting from scripture or from tra tradition or lineage, even if it's their own, from Greek philosophy or something, it doesn't matter. If you're not quoting from a philosophy that's established, you're essentially trying to create your own. 
And any person in who studied philosophy, I have not studied it uh, professionally, academically, but obviously I've spent a lot of time studying it. In my, and people who, who have studied it will tell you it doesn't make you a philosopher just because you have a philosophy degree. So um, in that sense, we can philosophize all we want about the nature of this reality and what's happening in it, but that is just to look at the effects. So we're looking at, oh, you know, this thing's happening, so how can we mitigate the way that people respond and how can we put things in place and change policies and all of this? And then what they do is they they look to uh, elect a leader that can deliver them this that they want, right? So the first problem is nobody agrees what they want. Second problem is none of the leaders can be said to be perfect man. So they can't uh, deliver perfectly on the execution. And therefore those problem, the problems will never be solved fully. So the, the Vedas proposes that the way of life contained therein is divine, revealed by the perfect person. But when I say perfect person, I mean the perfect energy or consciousness in whatever way you relate to it. That divine knowledge has revealed the objective reality. And we looked at that objective reality and said, well, I don't like parts of it. And this has been likened, this made me laugh so much, it's been likened to us going to the doctor and I say, uh, yeah, you know, I've got this problem. And the doctor says, well, we'll stop doing this. And I say, I don't really like that answer. So I'm going to go and do something else and hope it goes away. And, and so we've tried in the West as much as we want to elect different leaders and create different political systems. But the Vedas proposes that the only word that can be absolutely objective is a, a divine word. So we first have to understand that, and it's not just, uh, I mean, I have a leaning towards Vedas, obviously, but it doesn't mean that there's not supreme truths in, in, uh, in other people's ideologies or theologies. But the truth is, a theology or ideology only succeeds so far as enough people understand it to propagate it properly. So if Sanatana Dharma, meaning the eternal way of righteousness, it lives on in all the Sikhs, in all the Hindus, in all the Jains, and all the Buddhists. Sanatana Dharma does. Maybe not all of, so you see, there was also one last thing on this, because I'm jumping, so, but the, the Vedas were interpreted in many different ways. And this is actually one of the main things I wanted to kind of uh, bring to the discussion today, is that people have different ideas of the nature of God, but we can distinguish them into four um, main ways of thinking, which are what Hinduism entails, essentially. So you have the different Vedantas. And I'll, if, 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 if we have time, I'll briefly uh, go through them, unless you have a question on a different line or then you wanted to follow. I have a, I have a totally separate question where we talked about lineage, but we can... If you want to continue this way, go ahead and then we'll come back to it. Okay. I'll try to be really short with it because these, these are very, very big topics. Of course. That I'm trying to give you a, a flash view of so you can research. So you have something called Advaita Vedanta, which means for anyone that doesn't is watching, means it's called monism. That is not monotheism. That is monism. Monism means the concept that Brahma, Brahma or the material reality, this, this reality we are in, is the only one, and that it is also God itself, and that we are, all, we are all God, and we are already God, in a way, we've just forgotten. And there is no separate reality to this. And then you have Dwaita Vedanta, which is called dualism, which says, there is God, and it is separate to this reality. And then there is Vishishtadvaita in the middle, which says, uh, this is the only reality, and God is outside it, but also of it. And it's compared to, uh, it's like the sun, and we are the sunlight. So without it, we can't be here. We're separate. It can go into a room, sunlight, without the sun being in the room. But it cannot be there unless the sun's there. So that's in the middle ground. That's where a lot of the main Hindu schools of thought come from. 
And then there's another one, which is, uh, I forget the name of it, but it's pure monism, which means literally there's not even a, it's literally material reality, materialist. That's all there is. So these are the four main schools of belief. And Lord Chaitanya, Sri Chaitanya, who's a, a, the yellow avatar of Krishna, the last one to come in Kali Yuga, came, uh, I'll go into that, Krishna came as his own devotee to taste what to taste Radha's devotion to his blue self, to the blue version of himself who came to establish Dharma. So he came as a yellow version, as his own supreme devotee. And this devotee unified all of the four schools quarreling about the nature of God by saying, let us just chant the names together in Bhakti Yoga. And that's a really beautiful message from him. But the, the final one, which we have, so there's those four, and then Sri Chaitanya unified them, the Vaishnavas anyway. Then you have, and the um, Shaivites, of course, who would say they would also fall within one of these Vedantas, but they would place more importance on the ability of the self to create the realization versus the Vaishnavas who would say more it's about the surrender. So it's whether it's yin or yang, basically, but essentially you have to have both and it comes together. Then you have Buddhism and atheism, which was separated from Hinduism for a reason, because an atheist says this reality is all there is, and there is no such thing as source consciousness. There's no such thing. There is just gravity. That is the, that is the supreme force, is gravity. And gravity has no sentiment. There's no intelligence. That's an atheist. And then Buddha said, uh, there is intelligence, but uh, there's no soul. There's no God. There's, there's an intelligence there. And it's just a logic, pragmatic approach. So in a way, it's pacifying of atheism. Uh, but because it rejects supreme consciousness, therefore it rejects the Vedas. Because the Vedas is the science of how to understand the Supreme Consciousness. So anybody, just to summarize on that, and then we'll go to the question you had. I'm quite impressed with myself for summarizing that, because I'm really bad. I will rant for Very ages. Well but but um, anyone that believes in a Supreme Consciousness or energy, like it doesn't have to be a God that has a body. It can be just an energy that's intelligent or Supreme or, what, or light, or whatever you think it is, if you believe there's something there more intelligent that is the source of all intelligence, then you can be classified under one of these four schools of Hinduism. And then there is a lineage of philosophy and theology and religion and ritual that will suit your set of beliefs and bring you closer to it, not tear you away from it. So it's not religion, it's actually the philosophy of all religion. And then you have Buddhism and atheism, which are their own kind of thing. And Buddhism, to me, looks like a middle ground between Hinduism and atheism. But I don't mean to disrespect it in any way to anyone that is a Buddhist. And uh, I completely sympathize with so much of the stuff in that philosophy. Um, but at the same time, it's not my philosophy. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, this, that's the kind of overview to how I feel belief systems fit within the world and in relation to Hinduism, it shouldn't be classed as one of the six major religions. It should be classed as the science of God realization for all religion. And in its own way, is its own unique culture and heritage that has endured longer than any other. And when we speak of it in that way, it deserves to have its own criteria and category. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I think the common, the common way that folks talk about it is that it's, it's, it's a way of life. It's not a religion. Uh, you know, and we, I mean, we define it as a religion here in the West for, for a variety of reasons, um, you know, practical reasons like legal protection, um, you know, so you kind of get boxed into that. But I think the challenges you have here in the West is that when you define it as a religion, folks try to box it into the religion, you know, framework, and it doesn't fit. Um, you know, it's, it's tough to try to take Sanatana Dharma, Hinduism, and put it into a framework that makes sense from an Abrahamic perspective, um, which causes a lot of issues. Uh, I would argue that this, this framework is no longer Abrahamic. Okay. So I'm not, I'm not saying that um, equally that I suggest that that um, 
that ideology and philosophy and sociology and politics works. But it's definitely not remnant of what it was when they originated it. Like what we have now is like a uh, what we have now is an atheist culture imposed on a bunch of mostly spiritual people. Are you referring to in the West? Where, where are you? Referring? Yeah, in the West. In the West. Yeah. But when I say in the West, that 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 because of the way the West has moved around <laughs> in their history. That's infiltrated everywhere now. Yeah. So even the places that weren't like that have been, it's hard to use unloaded words uh, for want of a better one, infected. Mm. Like the ideologies of the the Western civilization, I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm saying they are in stark contrast to the ideologies of the Eastern one. Oh, yes. And so the Vedas which is where all the Eastern ones come from. Let's establish this, yeah. the Vedas. So it's Vedas versus whatever the Western civilization bases their philosophy on. And that no longer is even Greek anymore or Roman. It's now whatever the hell they want it to be. And they're not united in it. So this civilization doesn't have a unified scripture. That's the point. It doesn't have a unified uh, scripture to go on. And if I if I just I just want to throw something out there because it's it's contentious and it's but it's exciting, right? Again, Swami Prabhupada Ji said this, and uh, I'm not saying this is my set opinion, but it certainly provides a strong argument. He says uh, the problem with Western uh, civilization is vox populi, meaning that we give the vote to everyone. And so, first of all, not everyone is educated enough in all the issues to be able to cast an intelligent vote. Mm. That's a fact. Mm. Not everyone knows about all the... So when you elect someone and you don't understand all the policies that they're putting forward, you only understand the ones most relevant to you and that's where you vote, right? That's all we can do. But And so he, he clarifies this by saying, and so why do we take... Uh, the, the significance of all of the stars in the sky in, in, in the presence of the moon. Because when the moon is there, it, it is not one vote compared to its, its impact on the earth versus all the millions of stars that just sit there and don't really have a big impact on our planet. So he's saying the moon is the divine word and the stars are everyone's own subjective realities. The moon is the objective reality. And that is where all the law and civilizations, ethics and structure should come from. Because all of those divinely revealed scriptures gave this a way of life, not just a philosophy. And if so if the people that align to certain beliefs stick to those beliefs in their place with their people, then everyone will be fine. And so if you don't like how it is where you are, then go to the part of the world where the people where your tribe is and live that way with them. But if we try to uh, have this globalization where actually everyone should just follow this ultra-liberal, no, no holds barred, you can do whatever the hell you want, that's nonsense. That's going to cause the most fights. And, th- and the reason it's all ultra-liberal is because of this post-colonial beneficiary attitude of, well, it's a free world and it's a dog-eat-dog world and there's no source consciousness. And I can just do what the hell I want with every, and, and whatever I come across is mine to, is my, you know, this idea of my and I, because it's void of source consciousness um, in the actual law. Well, let me, let me, let me chime in because what you're talking about here, there was a, um, a very interesting talk by a professor here in New York um, who has extensively studied the Mahabharata. And he has talked about the differing philosophies, the Western philosophy versus the Eastern philosophy um, and, and the difference between the two and how um, this Abrahamic philosophy has largely uh, shaped the way our world is. So, you know, in, in that philosophy, man is created in, uh, the vision of God. And so man dominates, right? Man dominates animals, man dominates plant, man is like the ultimate. And so that leads to this idea of my rights, right? 
my, this is for me to have my, um, you know, uh, uh, my rights over everything else, what I want, my selfishness, right? Versus the dharmic philosophy, which is based on dharma, right? So what is dharma? Dharma is what is my responsibility? What is my duty to the world? And so they're two fundamentally different outlooks. And you can see, I mean, even if you just take a complete tangent and look at the environment, for example, right? When you're looking at what is my rights versus my responsibilities, you can see that if you had followed a dharmic perspective, I think maybe our environment would be in a whole different place versus this other idea of man made in the image of God and no, but the, just, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know why, but I, uh, you know, I have a sort of soft spot for Christianity because I have read the Bible and known a lot of good Christian people. Sure. And they, they, at its roots, in its orthodox sense, uh, I do believe it has so much supreme truth in The thing is, we've got to be careful about not um, drawing too many lines where they don't exist. So my, in my personal uh, perception of what you're saying, um, certain texts or script, uh, verses in the Bible say that man was given dominion over all of the other beasts and beings, right? Now, this is the problem is with the interpretation of the text, because if you don't do yoga first to break your dogmas and your idiocracies and your um, ego, ego side of things, then you come to this text with, I am now this. So you have to do yoga to read Bible first. Otherwise, you're not going to read Bible in the way you want to read it. So when it, and this the problem with it is dominion. This then you go into your, where did that word come from? Who translated it? Is it King James version or this version? It gets messy. But the pro, if you look at that message, if you insert universal Sanatana Dharma as you said into it, the message is correct. Man has dominion over all other beings, meaning he has great responsibility because he has the most power. And so he should be the most responsible and that is the heaviest of responsibilities and he's the most gifted and therefore we should use that to bring balance to the world. And if you look at the rest of the Bible in context, it should support that with that verse. But the scholars that you're talking about, I want to, and then to go back to this discussion point, then, this is the problem even with the yoga scholars who only quote their Western counterparts and attempt to understand yoga and Hinduism and Sanatana Dharma and the Vedas from an academic perspective. But they are not following science. I'm going to prove that right now. These academics who academically uh, speak on Bhagavad Gita but uh, don't embody it, this is why they're not science. Because science requires, I studied biology at university, so they educated me very well in the process of what science means and what science is not. So science means first hypothesis. And in spiritual terms, this is called declaration of the Acharya, which means the spiritual master says, it is so that this happens. And that's the hypothesis. It is so that gravity always brings things down on earth. And the spiritual master says, it is so that you can reach transcendence through meditation. That is the hypothesis or declaration. Then you need method. This is science method. So don't give me any theories about how we're here until you can give me the whole method of science with it, right? So method is how to approach and create the and uh, how to approach and prove the answer, how to find the answer. So then the method in science is to have controls and to have uh, data collection and statistics and all this stuff. And the method in spirituality is to embody and practice. So the science is of the body, the spirituality, and of the mind and of the spirit and of the heart. So the meditation is the practice. The reading of the Upanishad and the Vedas is the practice. The chanting is the practice. The devotional worship to God is the practice. The serving others and living in your truth is the practice. The doing Dharma is the practice. They don't do all those things. They're still in hypothesis. And then you have conclusion, which doesn't have to say, uh, we know now. 
It can say we have concluded that we don't know still. But conclusion in spiritual terms is realization. So just to summarize that for everyone, if I do science, I say, I want to test, uh, I want to test the hypothesis that water boils at 100 degrees. And now I'm going to put it in the pan and boil it to 100 degrees with a thermometer to make sure it's 100 degrees. And I'm going to check I know that the theory says 100 degrees and why. And what happens to the molecules. I'm going to know everything about it. And then I'm going to do, put it to the test. And then I've done it at 100 degrees and it's boiling. So I'm going to write down, it's boiling and here's a video. And now I'm going to publish that in peer-to-peer review journal. And it's accepted as fact. And spiritually, what we do is we say, if you meditate, you can uh, reach connection to the source consciousness and the cosmic energies. And here is the process. Do this. So you do it. Sit there, pranayama, meditation, yoga, dharma, everything. And then the realization occurs. Oh my God, this, my life is changing. I can feel sensitive. sensitive. My, my understanding of what's going on is different. I'm not suffering as much. They, the Vedas promised me this. It promised me if I do this, it will happen. So I did it and it was delivered. And so that's real, that's realization, self-realization. So that is science and it's proven, proven empirically within the soul, within the self. And so for anyone to even try to talk on Bhagavad Gita and what it means without having ever offered Yajna to Krishna doesn't know the true essence of what's in that because if they don't feel bhakti in the heart they can't read the words in the same way especially if they have a different ideology so if they're like actually you know I'm more aligned with Buddhist theories I'm an atheist but I like some of the Buddhist stuff so I take the meditation and because I'm a philosophy professor I'm also going to comment on Bhagavad Gita and Quran and everything else but I'm I'm an atheist slash Buddhist let me say, but you don't have, you don't even in your deepest of hearts believe that there is any supreme consciousness. So how can you talk on the sentiment of what it is for anyone to be healed from suffering through connecting to it? You have not resolved your own suffering with your philosophy and you're telling us we can't do it through ours or you're giving us a, you're looking at it from a distance instead of trying to understand it from what it is. So uh, in that way, I feel like uh, we do, this is why I campaign for Indian representation in everything yoga, because uh, it's not a nationalist idea. It's a, uh, it's a, a, a native origin idea to the place of origin. So, you know, if I want to know about something, I want to know about it from where it was revealed. And when we say peer-to-peer review, we mean the Guru Parampara, the question you were, you were going to ask. Right? What is, how do we say that this spiritual master has declared that you can, you can reach supreme consciousness through meditation? Now, how can we say that he knows what he's talking about? He's just an individual that said it, it, can, it, can, it can be done. No, he's not an individual. He has millions of people from 7,000 of years who testified to the gurus who have propagated it, and they are the gatekeepers to make sure it doesn't get distorted. So Guru Parampara is as good as peer-to-peer review, in my opinion. And therefore, because there exists no peer-to-peer review of actual yogis, because they're not yogis, they're philosophers of yoga, on yoga, not of it, they're philosophers on yoga. They're not yogic philosophers. And so they, they, they can't give the, the full message. It has to be Guru Parampara that gives it. And w- when they give it, we are at a stage now with all the New Age philosophy and things like this, where the West can understand it because they're, they're sufficiently intelligent enough. If they bring themselves, they can read Veda. And you know why um, I believe that? Because although, yes, I'm Indian and it's in my blood and it's in Akashic records and it's in our, my, from my ancestors as well, um, I, didn't, I wasn't really taught it in that sense. I had to learn it all myself. And I just did that with my, with my Western education. There's a fact. My Western education gave me the brain I've got now. 
to understand the things I'm reading. And my Indian soul and my Indian body gave me the uh, the ancestry to embody it easier, I think. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, I want to continue down this line of um, the Guru Shishya relationship and the importance of parampara and lineage. Uh, I mean, we know that it's, it's very important in yoga, uh, although it has obviously been diluted and dare I say lost um, with a lot of the yoga that's happening in the West. And unfortunately, I fear it's also moving its way back to India as well. Uh, maybe, you know, cause we had originally, I have a bunch of questions around this, but we had originally started talking about um, your practice of Kushti and Kalari as well. Does this same um, Parampara lineage also hold within those art forms? If you do you call them art forms? Yeah, of course. Yeah. hundred oh. um, percent. Yeah. So the, first of all, the, the art forms, um, they will be described as different. That see, Kalari and Sanatan Shastravidya and Silambat and all these different fighting styles, they're categorized under hand to hand combat and weapons combat, which are two arts of 64 from the Vedas. One of them is the art of hair tying in devotional service for God, which is quite interesting. I was just looking at a list of them the other day. It's 64 colors, K-A-L-A-S. And uh, all of those are devotional arts of the Vedas, which are basically things we can do that are fun and enjoyable or interesting and have massive philosophies behind them that allow us to understand God in their own way. And so fighting is one of those, but that's the job of a warrior someone who wants to actually fight and who has been endowed to fight. And that doesn't mean endowed physically, that means endowed spiritually. Mm. So we've got this concept of um, ashramas, right? Which is um, the stages of your life. And then we also have this varna, which is not hierarchical, but it's industry vertical. This is the Vedic system, right? So... If somebody is um, if somebody is a uh, Brahmin by birth, but does not study the Vedas or do that as a profession, Krishna calls them son of Brahmin to differentiate, which means yeah, you're blood of one, but you're not a Brahmin. Right. That's not your job. You're just a, you're just the son of a Brahmin. So don't go around saying you are as if you're getting lofty on the Vedas because you don't know. And even the Brahmins that were taught all the Vedas, the senior ones would say, until you really punish her, you know nothing. Because Vedas is all the science and Upanishad are the stories that give us the morality of how to use it. But if you put the, the Vedas, which is a weapon of mass destruction essentially, uh, because it can be a weapon of mass destruction or it can be um, the savior of all beings. So if you, the person that invented the nuclear bomb, he quoted Bhagavad Gita. Yeah. He was inspired by something he read to create a nuclear bomb. And then he realized after, what the hell have I done? So this is the point. You don't give Vedic information like that to irresponsible, uh, dogmatic, ignorant fools. Like, you know, and then, so, because that's what they do with it. They'll see that there was an explosion and they try to recreate it. What kind of nonsense is that? The, the message of it is we don't want explosions. Right. So this knowledge has to be come to with a certain style of approach. And the yoga, yoga is the method by which we can come to that if we're not lucky enough to have been born into a Brahmin family that uh, teaches this to us. But equally, if a Brahmin wants to become Kshatriya, which means warrior or, or protector of the people, the ways, then he should be equally, and it says in the Vedas as well, that you, you can be equally, if you're inclined to something else and you have the means, then you can do it. As long as you're uh, accepted to learn it, it's the people that say, no, 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 you're not from this, you can't do it. There's these idiots. There should be no casteism there. If somebody's willing to do the work, because on the spiritual level we're all equal and anybody that propagates anything different is an idiot because 
how can they how can they promote anything from what is in Vedas? Their philosophy has to be based in Vedas for it to be accepted in Hindu in any of the Indic religions. It has to be based in Vedas, and this is what Sri Sri Ramunajan, who first prepared, uh, is a Acharya Yamunajan Acharya, promoted in Vishistha that. The Vedas can be interpreted in a way to seem that the Supreme Consciousness and, and Brahma is this reality and that's it, so Advaita. But it can also be interpreted to, because of the uses of the word lotus feet or Krishna and things like this, that God has a body. So it encompasses all the views of Advaita to Advaita. And the problem is, if you take only one-sided view, what you're, what you're then doing is, is pushing aside half of the Vedas. And saying, well, we don't accept those verses because these ones are more significant. That's where you get extremism and problems in other religions as well. So the message of Vishishtavaita and of Chaitanya and other people like this was, it matters not as long as the principles are based in Vedas. But overall, Vishishtavaita says, uh, if, you, if, you, if you don't accept the Vedas in the entirety, then you're fooling yourself, basically. We have to understand it, that we can't co fully comprehend the Vedas, so we can only try to say, say in this in one instance, this in another, so it must be something in between that we can't quite grasp. But we get the duality. We get the hot and we get the cold, and so we, through balance, we can understand roughly what it must be. Right? Yeah, well, you've touched upon a lot of a lot of interesting points and points that are very relevant to what's what's going on right now. Um, cast being one of them, unfortunately. But you know, I think the broader point is is the interpretation of Hindu scriptures and the way it's done from an academic perspective. Um, it's selective. Um, oftentimes it's selective interpretation and oftentimes it's a literal interpretation when it's not meant to be literal interpretation. And this, you know, selective interpretation has caused so much misunderstanding about Hinduism and has largely led to this, this caste issue. Um, because what you are talking about caste is absolutely correct, that it was never a strict hierarchy. It was not meant to be a strict hierarchy. And yet it has unfortunately become this kind of social evil, uh, you know, and, and there's a lot of kind of caste based discrimination issues that are that are going on and has kind of filtered its way over here to the U.S. as well. Um, but, you know, this this idea and what's what's morphed here is that this idea that caste based discriminate caste based discrimination is inherent to hinduism and so if you are a hindu you must have a caste and you probably discriminate based on caste it's been intricately unfortunately through academics and through others it has been linked solely to hinduism and you know one of the myths that we're trying to dispel as the hindu american foundation is one that, that, that that's wrong you know caste is not intrinsic to the practice of Hinduism. And two, that caste-based discrimination is a social evil. You know, a lot of, in India, a lot of missionaries try to convert what we would call lower caste to Christianity by saying, this is your way of escaping caste-based discrimination. But once they convert, they're still faced the exact same thing within the converted Christian community. Mm -hmm. And so it's become this widespread social evil that that's not just in India. It occurs in, in yeah. Pakistan and Bangladesh. It's a huge problem. These, this, the, they, um, you see, one of the things that's really hard when we say they, right, is not my friends who are white and English and American. It's not my friends doing it. I don't know who they are doing it. There's these politicians and these companies and whatever, but this, whoever it is that's forming this Western mode of thinking and promoting that ideology. I will refrain people, from calling Well, it's okay to do this now, so we accept it. And are they going to legalize marijuana now? So that, I'm not saying legalize it or not. I'm just saying people are like, oh, well, it's all right now. So we're, we're, you know, we're used to smelling it on the street. But 20 years ago, we had a problem with it. You don't know what you're, you don't know whether you have a problem or not with it. You just go along with whatever everyone else says, status quo. 
And who's leading that? We don't know. Well, That's this discussion. I could, I'm, I'm going to refrain from, from pointing out who's yeah. leading some of these efforts because no. it's... Some, some, some efforts are targeted in certain areas. I mean, where is the main drive coming? I mean, then you go into this conspiracy theory uh, layer, which we don't want to talk about. But I mean, like, all this Illuminati stuff. These are, uh, there's like a shadow... But there is a force of a group of individuals or organizations or entities that are pushing a certain ideology and civilization. But I'm saying the people themselves are not the ones pushing it. They're just following along with it because they're not in control of this civilization. The people aren't in control of it. Something else is. Now, what, what I want to say about that thing is, so I wanted to distinguish because, differentiate, because that thing, that shadow, that shadow entity that's making it, yeah, that's programming the society through the music, through the videos, through everything, through the media. That shadow entity is not the people. And the people are just in ignorance and they just need educating. So I don't think they're necessarily we should look at each other as enemies like that. It, but this remnant of the empires or colonial attitude that is in some people, but still very strong in a corporate and political sense, that colonial attitude is intellectual bullying. But what they don't realize is that we are uh, in, in, uh, in, in, the, in South Asia, we are the intellectual originators. The Vedas is the origin of all knowledge. It has all the mathematics, the origin of the number zero, which means in, zero means infinity or nothing. So it's everything or nothing. That means God. One means material reality. We taught zero to the West. That means we taught them God and infinity before they just thought there was one. There was just this reality. So then their religions evolved after that to realize uh, God. But so we knew that it's like when, when they colonized India, they brought that intellectual bullying and some of the uh, uh, leading people that came over to the traders that came to establish uh, their sneaky ways of getting into India. They say, I, I can't quote it, but it'll be as close as I can. Uh, so it's not a quote. But uh, something or other about we need to, uh, these, men or, these men and women of Indian race, blood and color, etc. we need to make them um, English in mind, English in dress and English in whatever else, right? This is intellectual bullying by a very junior, unintellectual civilization that has not very been around very long and has no proof of concept because they haven't produced peace. And so they've only produced war. So they haven't got any of the proof to back their philosophy. And it's very young and junior, and it doesn't stand against most of the Vedic philosophy, yet they come over and bully us with it. And then when they left, they made sure to destroy as much as they could of Sanatana Dharma by banning culture, by banning martial arts, by banning this and that. And when they left, the last kick in the nuts right, was leaving. This is what I mean by when Swami Prabhupada said this, by leaving the twisted, weird version of democracy with us. That's how, and their, and their twisted method of capitalism. Capitalism is not wrong, necessarily. It can work. But the way that they implement it with consumerism and with, their, with everybody can be a boss, an entrepreneur, this silly ideology that people don't need to just do their jobs in, and their duty. Everyone should try to be whatever they want. This silly ideology and philosophy that they propagate, and they pushed it onto our people and destroyed all of our ancient way. I believe it was on purpose because they wanted to dominate the world forever. But the thing is, they can't suppress the human consciousness because it's more powerful than them. And everyone in the world is waking up to the fact that the leaders aren't doing what they should. And as a result, they're looking for alternative answers. And when you do that in a, in a place where the politics are very tight, uh, you can't just go and run for whoever you want, you know? You have to have a lot of process. In that environment, there's only two ways uh, uh, that can be resolved, in a material way or in a spiritual way. And if you look at it materially, it's just arguments and a lot of... Uh, upset for anyone that thinks they can create a utopia. It's going to be like this forever. If we look at it in a spiritual way, 
actually, we don't need to focus so much, in my opinion, on changing all the processes all the time. We need to uh, change the people's consciousness and the, and the processes will begin to change by themselves. The policies will change because people are conscious, not because they're intellectually uh, aggressively debating their differences in opinion. What they're doing is coming together in knowledge of source consciousness and through bhakti yoga and through karma and dharma, they'll create the right policies. So this is the whole point of wanting to, the, the Indian acharyas and yogis wanting to give yoga and, and Hinduism in a sense, but Sanatana Dharma and Vedas to the West. They were like, they, I think they saw it that we can just keep our stuff here and be peaceful like we have for 7,000 years. But these guys are spreading so quick all over the world we have to give them this technology to, to spiritually save them. Otherwise they'll destroy us too. And when it comes to the end, you know, so it's our never ending uh, mission is to, is to try to keep as much of the world in line using the Vedas uh, against this anti Vedas ideology that the West is. And they can have it if they want. Nobody, everybody's free to do what they want. Right. But in a way, the continuance of that, is uh, I I do believe we there can be a middle ground somewhere where the Vedic way of life can be brought into the Western uh, way of technology and progression and advancement, if you like. But uh, I don't believe it will ever happen because um, people don't want to accept restriction in the West. There's a really last but important point on this thing. you, you tell a yoga teacher who's done four weeks that dancing dancing uh, in your underwear with a bottle of wine, chanting Vedic mantra is wrong. If you try to tell, and they post it on Instagram, if you try to tell them, this, you can't, listen, you're, I know you're expressing yourself, that's fine, but you can't do that with our Vedic mantra. You're, you're disreputing and appropriating. They act like a two-year-old in a pram who got the toy taken away. Like, give, give me that. What are you doing with it? It's not yours. What are you messing around with it like that? Have some respect for this thing. You can play with it if you want, but don't, uh, you know, break it and do this and this. And what, what's their reaction? They just, they just sulk and they get mad. And the fact is, because we can't do anything of it, they don't let go of the toy. They don't think, let me understand this for what it is. They just want to smash it in every way they can that makes it fun for them. And then, but they don't want to respect who gave it to them. First of all, who gave me this toy, and what do they feel about it? And you know, what do they feel about me smashing it on the floor? There's no gratitude. It's just the, the civilization is is being groomed from birth to be like that. You make a, you make an interesting point. Um, uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to read Eddie's book, One Simple Thing. Uh, about yoga, but he has a, a fantastic line in there that touches upon exactly what you said. And I, I'm not going to quote it correctly, but it was basically the idea that freedom doesn't mean that you do anything that you want to do. Freedom means that you practice the same thing over and over and find freedom within it. Um, and I thought it was so beautifully said, and it speaks to exactly what you said. I think the Western interpretation of finding freedom is effectively, I can do whatever I want. Um, yeah, well, if you tell them they can't, they don't like exactly. it. So they go to the doctor and they say, please, Indian guru, I am a major politician in Russia. I am a major politician. All of them do it. You go and read the quotes of every single politician from any country who, who, has, who has taken a trip. They've all been in contact with India because they know there's the mother of spirituality and peace. Because it, even India was the only, 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 only one. Do not persecute the Jews. Yeah. No, it was the only one that um, did not try to expand its borders, except for in ancient, ancient times, there was an emperor called Ashoka, who was a Buddhist, who rejected the Vedas, therefore. The Buddhist king must have rejected the Vedas and wanted to expand an empire. Outside of that, there is no empire. It's just Bharatavarsha, the natural culture and heritage of the people of that land. And... Um, so in, in, in that thing about freedom, I read this somewhere else, I can't remember where, it's such a long time ago, but what we have now is 
uh, we've given our uh, sense of control to an external source, meaning the government and the police and everyone else. So when something goes out of control, we call the authorities to deal with it. Right? We need to have a policy change on this. We need to call the police. We need to apprehend that man. Right? So all of our control of society has been given to uh, authorities. And so, and then, so externally, we are uh, in control. And then internally, everyone's uh, in trauma, which is chaos. Yeah. And absolutely doesn't know what to do, what's going on, how they can help, what they should even do, who they are, what should I do with my life? They don't know anything. Chaos. And what it should be is the opposite, which is uh, internal control. And then you can have external chaos. <laughs> anything goes outside, if everybody has internal control, then anything can go outside because nobody's going to come from a silly place because they're all controlled. Yeah. So everyone wants external anarchy, external chaos. They were like, oh, give us all the freedom. We want to do what we want. You're not responsible to have it. You're not responsible to have it because you are in internal chaos. So until you are in control, you do not get external freedom. You don't get it. That's what prison means for pedophiles and rapists. That's what it means. You don't get your freedom until you've rehabilitated and you've uh, served uh, your justice of time as per the people and uh, the divine word. So I had a conversation with a psychologist the other day, which is interesting. And um, she said she was against, against incarceration. And I just had to drill it because I, I drew into that. And I was just like, so you're telling me if a person repeatedly offends and uh, even though told that this is wrong, just keeps doing it, that we should not incarcerate that person. How do you deal with it then? But there's no answer, right? Yeah. So then she submitted, and I was like, well, so that you can't say you're, not, you're against incarceration. You're all saying you're against the politics of the way the incarceration happens where you are. But you cannot be against the concept of incarcerating people who do not have control. They have to be restrained because that's for the greater good. You have to stop them until they can show that they're in control. So what we've got is just loads of nutters on the loose, basically. You don't even know they're nutters. We're all nutters. We're all mad. We're all, we've all lost our marbles, and we're all on the loose. And uh, until we learn some self-control, nothing's going to happen, is it? It's just going to carry <laughs> There you have it. So I'm just looking at the time. We're past the one hour mark. I know we have a lot of stuff. There's still more. There's a lot more here. I think we're going to have to do a, do a follow-up here, um, either another podcast or an Instagram live, because I think there's still a ton of questions that I had that we didn't get to. And I know you have a lot more to say. Um, so you're going to shoot me a last one or we finish? Sorry. You're going to shoot me a last one or will we finish now? Um, I'm going to shoot you one last one. Um, because I just do want people to know that you did, you did write a book. Um, and I just wanted you to talk a little bit about, um, what your book is about. No, thank you. <laughs> I, I will not talk too much about it because then people won't read it. But, <laughs> but, but uh, so page one, <laughs> um, essentially it's a very small scraping off the top of what, of what I'm trying to do in terms of sharing the scientific Western academic knowledge that I was brought up with and how I fused and used that to understand the ancient Vedic knowledge. And so it's a bringing together of actual scientific fact and comparison to actual spiritual fact, fact, spiritual fact, and they are equal. Scientific fact is equal to spiritual fact because they're both sciences. One is material science and one is uh, uh, spiritual science, metaphysical science. So um, the book is tries to capture a great range of history and facts and opinions and perspectives of different yogis and different types of ways of looking at yoga in comparison to how we normally look at it in the West now and gives glimpses and hints into the truth of where the actual information lies about what it is. And um, I mean, people that read it and then listen to me separately about what I talk about on my page and my own things uh, will know that I'm a 
uh, a big proponent of bhakti yoga and dharma and karma. And so I consider hatha and raja, meaning all the, the physical yogas, to only be the means. Uh, they're not the end. So to be a gymnastic expert yogi is just nonsense. To me. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't. It's not yoga. If, if it, it's just it's just whatever it is. It's what it is. What you're doing. But it's not yoga until it satisfies certain criteria. And Hatha and Raja only takes you so far. And the rest are the evolved yogas. And um, I want to push those out more. But this book doesn't um, is not was not supposed to be uh, a preaching book. So the book is comes from an informational perspective. But if I were to preach, like I've in, uh, and I don't like the word preach, but if I was to share and explain and paraphrase and parlay things, I would say that there's much more to this than that book reveals. That that book is a universal, open and welcoming introduction to the real sciences. And then I, I have to write more books, obviously. You know? <laughs> Well, I look forward to reading it. It's New Age Yoga, correct? That's right. Yeah. Okay. You can get it on Amazon. I know. It's in yeah. my Amazon cart, actually. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to send one. I'm in the fans. <laughs> so, all right. Well, uh, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to speak with us. And I definitely think we're going to have to have a, a second, maybe even a third part to this conversation because there's a lot <laughs> yeah. more to talk about. Yeah, let's, we, we can do it longer next time as well I don't mind because once you get into the groove of it it's, it's good so. absolutely well that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu if you enjoyed it please take a minute and leave us a nice five star review it's how you can help the show get discovered by more listeners you can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate and before you go a quick message The Hindu American Foundation proudly supports We Can Do This, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services nationwide COVID-19 and vaccine education campaign. Our community has been hit hard by COVID-19, and many of us need help in getting educated about how we can get vaccinated. Our organization is working hard to ensure our community has access to important information in our fight against COVID. Learn about COVID-19 vaccinations and get help scheduling your vaccination at vaccines.gov. We can do this.